that. Well, hey, I'm Jared, and I get to continue our series today. Uh, I'm really, really grateful that uh, Marley and uh, Lydia were with me today. Uh, let's see, Brad speaking at a camp in Bend. Uh, Kim has been speaking at camp this week, and they get back uh, in an hour or so. Uh, Anne is speaking at a church about 100 miles away, and, uh, and I'm speaking today. So uh, really appreciate uh, for friends that are here and for you coming. Yeah, I want to make this worth your time. I get to, to uh, continue this series called You Asked For It. If you're a guest with us today, this spring we had a survey asking questions, are there some things of particular interest to you or challenges? And uh, in church, you, you had an amazing list. We'll only get to a few of them this summer. Lydia started with, uh, how can I believe the Bible? Brad last week talked about how can I hear God? Today I'm going to be talking about how can I deal with grief? And then we're taking five weeks off for our Boomerang series, inviting men and women who have been sent out from here as pastors, church planters, and missionaries that will come back and uh, we'll have some fun reunions. And then at the end of the summer, we're going to pick this series back up and finish it uh, into September. So today we're going to be talking about an experience that all of us have had and all of us will have in the future, but probably is not one that we talk about a lot. When we love and lose, we grieve. And today we want to talk about how should we deal with that. Well, I discovered that people deal with grief in different kinds of ways. Have any of you noticed that? When I was 30 years old, it was my first day on a new job, I joined the staff of a a large church of several thousand, and my first day there, I walked in, and the pastor who was responsible for pastoral care of this congregation that week came running down the hall waving a pink slip. You know those old school pink slips, phone message pink slips? And his name is Bruce, and he was running at me. He said, Jared, Jared, we have a problem. And I was like, I didn't come here for problems. You know, this is my orientation. And he said... "Uh, Somebody has to go do a graveside service in 45 minutes. And I thought, well, you know, that's really quick. He says, it's across town. It's going to take 30 minutes to get there. And uh, I said, well, you'd better get going. (laughs) He said, no, 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 no. He said, "Uh, we know nothing about these people. It fell through the cracks. Apparently, someone here committed to doing this service, and no one was there. And so they just called from the cemetery asking where the the pastor was, and we've got to cover this. And I said, well, you better really get there now. And he said, I have never done one of these in my life. So I said, you had better come with me then. (laughs) So we drive across town, and we get there, and we're just in time. Never met one person at the graveside service. But I had also never witnessed the experience. There were two women physically fighting yelling, swearing, and swinging at each other. And so I quickly made a new friend, and I said, who are they? And she said, they're the widows. He got remarried and hadn't bothered to mention to his new wife that he wasn't divorced. And they were fighting over which one was going to sit in the widow's seat. You know, those graveside services, there's these pokey little fold-out things up the front one row often, right? And so uh, I am 30 years old. I am here to conduct a somber graveside service. I'm putting on my best pastoral grief management behavior, 
And I went up to them and I said, hey, you two, cut it out right now. That's how you address grieving widows that are misbehaving. And they looked at me and, and I said, you, you sit right there. And stunned, she did. And I said, you sit right there. And she did. And I said, if either of you have a friend that you want to sit next to you, they can sit in the two in the middle. And we had a graveside service. At the Lord's Prayer, recited the 23rd Psalm. We prayed and committed, and my friend left, and he said, I'm getting out of this business. <laughs> we, we did not need this. <laughs> we process grief differently. Maybe your family is noisy and verbal and big gestures, and maybe your family's more like mine. We stuff emotions. When I was five years old, my 13-year-old brother died. And the night before Jim died, he died the night before he was scheduled for open-heart surgery at Dornbecker Hospital, a surgery that was anticipated to repair several congenital heart defects. He had to wait until he was 13 years of age to have that surgery at the time. Uh, he was suffering that night unexpectedly. Our parents rushed him in the backseat of their car to the emergency room. He died about 2 a.m. on the way to the emergency room. My 17-year-old sister woke me up. My 19-year-old sister returned home. Our family huddled together in our living room until dawn, and we did it the Roth way. Everyone was silent. My parents took their Bibles, went to their two quiet time chairs, found comfort in scriptures. I remember them having a quiet conversation. My sisters and I sat in silence. A couple of days later, we went to the viewing of Jim's body at the funeral home. The casket was open. Our family was there. It's the one time in my entire life that I ever saw my dad cry. The next day was a graveside service in Eugene. It was one of those blustery, horrible spring days. The wind was blowing. The rain was beating. There was a, a trio that sang as well as they could, which wasn't well enough, and a pastor that did his best and read some scriptures and said a few words and prayed, and, and then the Roth family went home. And that's how we process Jim's death. Well, Maybe not completely. Four months later, my mom rushed out of our farmhouse to the front yard where she found me holding a shovel, digging a deep hole in the front yard. What are you doing? And I said, I'm digging a grave like Jim's and I'm going to bury myself. Hmm. Maybe my grief didn't get processed. You know, we all suffer in different ways, but there are some ways that are generally more helpful than some others. And I don't fault my family for bringing their best to the mix, but I'm also very grateful for people who have given me some insight over the years on how God has wired us and designed us and how we can personally move through separation and difficulty and how we can be of help to others as well. And so today, I want to talk with you about maybe how we can deal with grief a little bit better than the Roth family did. Any of you for that? Yeah, here we go. Here's our big idea today. In our grief, God wants us to be, would you say these words with me? Informed 
and encouraged. We're going to read about that in just a moment. Now listen, our grief is our emotional, cognitive, and physical response to loss. Now, when we lose, we grieve. Probably all of us have lost friends or loved ones to death. Many of us have lost in divorce or in a broken romantic relationship. We've suffered the loss of broken dreams or being fired or parents or kids or grandkids not turning out as we had hoped they would or the loss of good health as we move into decline or the loss of a loved pet. It hurts to lose because when we love and lose, we grieve. And God wants us to learn some things about that. Many scholars believe that the first book of the New Testament that was written is what we call 1 Thessalonians. Those early Christians uh, were surprised when some of their friends and loved ones started to die, physically die. They had misunderstood that if they were in a relationship with Jesus, that the resurrection life of Jesus included not only their spirit and soul, but it also included immediately their bodies. Therefore, their bodies would never die. So you can appreciate that they would be quite confused about what happened to these friends and loved ones that physically died. And so Paul writes to them to give them some insight about what has happened. And we learn some fantastic discoveries as well. Notice as we read first in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start at verse 13. He says this, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Pause for just a moment with me. He, he likes to use the euphemism sleep to talk about people dying. John uses a similar convention in his writings, but he's talking about physical death. And he's talking about, in Christ, our understanding is that we are either alive in the body or we are alive outside of the body. When people die, it's truly an out-of-body experience. Our spirit and our, and our soul immediately is in the presence of Jesus. We're going to read that in just a moment. But their confusion was people whose bodies had died, and they were concerned that it was the end for all of their being. And he said, I want you to be aware of what's happening because I want you to be informed about grief. Because while we all share a common human grief process experience, as Christ followers, we have a huge element of hope that makes all of the difference. We are not grieving humans without hope, but we are grieving humans with hope. And here is the hope that we have. Notice as we continue in verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of an archangel and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, 
encourage one another with these words, informed and encouraged. If you've lost a loved one or a friend uh, to death, someone in Christ, you can know that their transition from this stage of life to another was similar to a caterpillar going into the tomb of, uh, what's that thing called? Oh, that's a big word for me, yeah. And then coming out transformed as the butterfly. To be separate from the body is to be present from the Lord. But your body's going to catch up eventually, right? And so when Jesus returns in this once in all of universal time experience and what we call his second coming or his return, somehow God is going to do the same chemistry kind of magic miracle that he did when he formed the first humans out of dust. So if your relatives have been cremated or if their bodies have decomposed, do not be concerned. God is big enough to actually do this amazing resurrection. And those who have been present with the Lord through what we call death, their bodies are going to catch up with them and we're going to catch up with them. And here's the great hope. We will all be together. Death is not a period. Death is a transition. When you say goodbye at a graveside, you are saying, see you sooner or later. That's the great hope that Paul wants to give us in Christ. So here it is. In our grief, God wants us to be informed, and he wants us to be encouraged. Informed that as humans, we share common grief patterns, but as Christ followers, we also have an unusual hope of a joyful reunion, not only with Christ, but also with loved ones as well. We say it all the time around here. If you want to know what God is feeling and doing and saying, just take a good look at Jesus. And in the second of two passages today, I want to take a look in a story of friendship and death and grief. In fact, I talked about it last Easter. If you're interested in this passage, want to unpack it more, you might listen to that podcast. But it's listening in, in John chapter 11, as Jesus visits the home of his friend Lazarus, who's just died, and has a conversation with the two sisters. Notice that as we pick it up in verse 21 and then skip to 32, it says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord... If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You notice maybe some anger? I have no idea what the two sisters were experiencing, but their words were identical. One of them might have been mad. One of them might have been sad. One of them might have been grieving, but they said the same thing. Jesus, you flat out showed up too late. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Well, come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, ah, oh, see how he loved them? And, and he asked um, See how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who had opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? 
Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, and now it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said, and and when he said this, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, and the dead man came out. Notice the shortest verse in the Bible right in the middle of the story. Jesus wept. You want to know what God's doing as he joins you in your grief? Jesus wept. Hmm. Jesus loved this family. He wept not because he lacked faith in the good outcome. He wept because of the horrific ravages continually inflicted on humans because of sin and brokenness. He wept because he loved. And it says, John uses strong language, that he was indignant. He was angry because of the ravages of sin that brings death in many forms. Jesus wept. And he teaches us that God does not stand aloof from you in your grief. You may feel so alone. Others try to console. They'll even say things like, I understand what you're going through, which really makes you mad because they can't. But Jesus is with you. Jesus became human, took on human form, and there's no grief that he is unwilling to carry with you. God wants you to be informed and encouraged. So let's talk a little bit about what informed looks like. Many of you are familiar with the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a Swiss-American psychiatrist who studied, actually, dying patients. And she developed something that we often call the five stages of grief. How many of you are familiar with that phrase, the five stages? Almost everybody here. We're going to be brief because of that. It's common knowledge. But it's interesting that she was actually studying patients who had been told that their condition was terminal. And she noticed that they tended to go through these five stages. And so there's denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance. And a little bit later in her research, she noticed that surviving family members and loved ones of people who've recently died also experienced grief expressed in these kinds of experiences. And then it was later generalized to when we experience not just loss through death, but by divorce or romantic breakups or the loss of a pet or some other a loss of a job, the loss of hopes and dreams, that we often experience similar kinds of emotions. And then uh, in, uh, organizational psychologists began to apply this to how groups of people can process sudden and unexpected and unfavorable changes. Now, the only thing wrong with this little chart is that it looks like it's a nice, neat progression, right? You're going to spend four days and 37 minutes in each one of these categories, and you're going to move neatly from one to the other. How many of you know that is not true? Yeah, we are a mess. We're all across. Some people jump right to one and get stuck there for a long time. Other people move through these progressions. Some jump from one to another. Some skip phases. And for most of us, it's cyclical. We go from one to another, or we experience two or three at the same time. Grief is a messy business. But this helps us have some context 
for what we might be experiencing. Because in my experience, especially with Christ followers, is that if we don't understand how God has wired us to experience loss, that we often suffer a lot of guilt. If I were a better Christian, if I had more faith, if I was really more like Jesus, if I really believed better, I would not have these feelings. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. So let's take a quick look about how we might experience stages. The first one is denial. This is our first reaction when we hear about a terminal illness or the loss or the death of a loved one. We deny it. No, we say, this isn't happening. This couldn't be. And by the way, I want to kind of do a little bit of reputation restoration here for denial. Let's hear positive things for denial. The truth of the matter is, when we are crushed with this sudden news that's shocking, it is often too much for our soul to bear. And denial is like a shock absorber. So if you're a mountain biker, you want to have nice shocks on the front of your bike. So when you catch some air and come down, there's some mechanics there to help absorb part of that shock. And that's what denial is. And this is very helpful for you as you want to be an encouragement to others in their grief. Let them experience that shock of denial. You're not, your job is not to say, oh, honey, trust me, I saw him. He is dead. Cold him, touched it. No, 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 not your need or job. If he's still there three years later, help him get some help. I understand. But denial is that immediate response. And even in, God, in, in denial, God is with us. I love these Proverbs. Two verses, one out of Proverbs 17, one out of Proverbs 18. A friend loves at all times. You can be with him. And there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You can be with her even in denial. How about anger? As denial begins to wear, we begin to feel this reality and pain. And the intense emotion probably still needs some deflection. And that deflection is often in the form of anger. Now, it might be anger that's aimed toward an inanimate object, like a wall that gets a fist in it. Or it might be a complete stranger that just cut you off and can't imagine why you used such loud tones when you spoke back at them. Or it might be a friend or family member who is surprised at how harsh your response is because anger gets directed outwardly. We often experience and feel anger toward the person that has just died. Cognitively, we know that that makes no sense, but emotionally, their death is what is causing us to experience this loss and pain. Doctors and medical personnel are wonderful target for displaced anger. You know, they diagnosed the illness and then they didn't do their job in providing the care that would have caused the person to have lived. And all of us, we don't talk about this. Let's keep it real. All of us have the potential of feeling tremendous anger toward God. Why didn't you? You could have. You are loving and powerful, and letting her die does not look like a loving and powerful God. God, why didn't you intervene in his death? Now, anger is a powerful emotion. It's also neutral, but it can be either used for great harm or for great good, which is why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, in your anger, so anger is assumed, 
in your anger, do not sin. And if you're grieving, I encourage you to be thoughtful about that. Grieve in an informed way. Even in your grief, your anger can be channeled in that energy toward something that's helpful and productive. And many of us have found in our grief that it's important for us to think outwardly and even do small acts of kindness and service toward others. Let that energy have a good and serving outlet. And then there's bargaining. It's the if-only statements. If only we'd sought medical attention sooner. If only we'd gotten a second opinion. If only I had been a better person. If only I had not said that the last time I was with him. If only I would have had a chance to have said my goodbyes. If, if only. And in our bargaining period, many of us also play, let's make a deal with God. God, if I, if I promise to do this and live this way, or do this thing, will you then, God, in this transaction, put this thing back together and make it right? And of course, it will never go back the way it was. In fact, when we are separated from things that are very important to us, it is transformational for us. We move forward differently. Life can be good and joy-filled again, but it is different. I love what Peter says to us. He says, I want you to come to God. And then here's his quote. Casting all of your care on him, for he cares for you. Notice in that tremendous promise that Peter does not say, and he will reverse time and circumstances and put it back the way it was. No, he says this in the present, God will be with you, he'll be near you, and he will care for you. There's great encouragement in that. Yesterday, Ann and I made a quick trip to Seattle to my uh, grand, uh, great-nephew's third birthday party. I would not miss one of those. And on the way up, we spent some time with my sister, his grandmother, uh, who is uh, really suffering a difficult uh, season of life. Uh, her husband, who is in his 80s, recently had a medical procedure, heart valve replacement. Uh, his body did not respond well to that. He had a stroke. He's lost the, uh, the movement on the right side of his body. And now he has been confined in a convalescent room, a home to, uh, to a bed for three weeks. And it's very difficult to figure out what's going to happen for his ongoing care and prognosis and, and, and what this means to his own health. And as I was talking with Joyce, and a woman of great faith, and we were listening to her story, I, I knew that it was time to do two things. First of all, it was time to be present. We're here with you. And it was time to not say something stupid. It was time to reinforce her faith not make promises on God's behalf, but to only state the promises that God has made because those are the ones that he will fulfill. To say with Joyce, at the end of listening to that story before he we went over to visit Alan in, uh, in, in his convalescent home, to say with Joyce, we know this, your burden is great. Your questions are many. Your challenges are huge. What we know is this, God is with you. 
and he cares, and he is carrying this burden with you. Yeah. Well, the good news is if you move out of bargaining, you can go straight to what? Depression, yeah. You glad you came today? This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So depression, yeah. We feel sad. We feel regretful. We worry about finances and the future. And, and then we worry that in our grief, we've been neglecting people that count on us. And, and then we worry about not being good people for them. And it's a lonely time. I want you to remember what Hebrews chapters 13 and then chapters 4 say. Familiar verses to many of you. Fantastic promises. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So now we can boldly say in response, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Or how about this one in chapter 4? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. We're going to pray in a few minutes before we go. We're going to pray for God's strength, for his mercy, for his grace, for his help for you. He is available to you today. And as we move through that sad and difficult time, then then if things go well, we come to acceptance. Acceptance is a gift that not every grieving person receives. Some people get stuck in anger or get stuck in bargaining or depression. But for most of us, we find our way forward. And listen, if you're grieving today or if you are caring for someone who is grieving, do not mistake acceptance for happiness. Acceptance is not a happy time. Acceptance is a time of coming to resolve that life is going to move forward. It's going to be different, but I'm going to take steps forward. There will be joy. There will be happiness. That will be restored. We understand. But acceptance is like a person that's had a severe physical injury, and eventually that has healed, but there's still some tenderness there where the skin has gone over the wound. But we know that the future, there is a future for us, and we must move forward. I did mention that in our grief, we don't do this sequentially. Some of you have been thinking about, I went through a grief thing, and I went straight to acceptance. And we say, for you, good for you. And others of you say, you know, I think I just started flat out at anger, and I just camped out there for a while. I don't think there was much denial. But the point is not the sequence. The point is not that we do all of these. The point is not that, uh, that there's some kind of linear uh, progression. The point is that we have some understanding that gives some context for what we or another might be experiencing. There really is a place to move on. Remember when Joshua's mentor died? Moses. God repeatedly, in the first several chapters of the book we call Joshua in the Old Testament, gave Joshua the same instructions time after time after time. And these are the words for someone who is grieved that has come to acceptance. God says to him, be strong and of good courage. There is a time in Christ that we take strength and we move forward bravely. I want to quickly give five tips. Maybe some of you that are experiencing grief today will find one of these helpful. There's obviously many other things that you could do, but just very simply, I found these to be helpful. Number one, make time for feeling the emotions that you're feeling. 
Jesus came to a grave knowing that he was going to physically resurrect a dead body to life, but took the time to weep. Jesus wept. Give yourself the gift that God wants to give you in the human emotions that he has wired you with to allow those things. Don't try to be the Roth family of stuffing and moving. They will catch up with you eventually. Take the time to feel in grief. Second, second piece of advice is, you know, thank friends for caring, even when they get it wrong, and they will. We're awkward around death. We don't know what to do and what to say. Some of us say stupid things. Some of us have said to a parent who's lost a child to death, God needed an angel. That's wrong and it's dumb and it's hurtful. But on the grieving side, your friend is there. Thank her for being there. She showed up in her awkwardness because she loves. Thank her for being there. Hey, take care of yourself during this time. Get out of the house. Go for a walk. You've got to eat. You've got to sleep. It's how God designed your body. Allow yourself to take a break from feelings. You do not have to let them pile on and put you in a funk forever. You can give yourself a break. And then I can't state it strongly enough. I encourage you to join a grief or a support group. You know, we do this journey better with others. We're so grateful for Chaplain Joel and Laura Peterson, who lead Grief Share here. Uh, some of you know that Joel uh, was taken to the hospital again yesterday. Understand that, that he's doing well, but our prayer, Lord, for Joel is that you're healing for his body. As our prayer in Jesus' name, Lord. Our next grief share here at Evergreen is going to be in September. You can begin registering for that the 1st of August. There are other grief shares around the community. If you go to the website, you'll find other locations that host those as well. Grief share is an opportunity for you to walk through with some other people which you might be experiencing. Just recently, a couple of weeks ago, I had coffee with one of the guys here in the church. His wife passed away a few months ago, and I was asking him about grief share, and he just finished it uh, recently, and he said, uh, was telling me stories about how helpful it was for him, and he said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a second round again this fall, and I said, why are you doing it again? And he said, well, for two reasons. First of all, I think, I think there's going to be some, some new things that are going to be helpful for me. And then he said, I also think that I'm going to be able to be really helpful for some other people as well. Hey, we're designed for community. Let's do this together. Well, I promised that there were two things. I didn't promise you that we were going to spend far more time talking about the first than the last. Aren't you glad knowing that now? Let's wrap it up with a second. Paul says, I want you to be encouraged. Encouraged. So how does God work? You know, in grief, our deepest faith can be shaken. It was for the church in Thessalonica as their friends were dying. Our faith can be shaken in others. Our faith can be shaken in the future. And during this time, it is so important for us to find our comfort in what is eternally certain. And that's what Paul wrote about. You can be certain of God's love you can be convinced of his presence 
You can be absolutely staking your life on his care for you. You can take comfort in his promise of being joyfully reunited in a physical sense with him and with other loved ones in Christ as well in the future. In your grief, attach your anchor to what is certain. It's God's love and presence. Singer and songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman and his Nashville-based family had a horrific loss just a few years ago. Their youngest daughter and sister, Maria, age five, was struck and killed by an SUV in their family's driveway, driven by a 17-year-old brother. The Chapman family decided that they wanted to talk publicly about their grief process and how they clung to hope in Jesus, hoping that it would be an encouragement to others. Initially, Stephen said that he just decided flat out he was never going to write another song, was never going to sing another song, was never going to give another concert. But over time, he felt like the Lord spoke to him and said, Stephen, if you believe the songs you wrote, and if you believe the songs that you sang, they are as true today as they were then. And so he sings. Maria's mom, Mary Beth, shared, I quote, I've been mad, I've been sad, I've jumped up and down, I've crawled under my bed, I've gone into my closet, you name it, I've done it. And I will never understand this side of eternity, why, Maria? Stephen admitted that part of the struggle and walk of faith is dealing with the why, and he says too, I don't think I'll ever know the why but I believe in Jesus with all of my heart. Maybe you're grieving right now. And isn't the question we most want answers to is why? We just can't reconcile why this happens. When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he didn't say, I'm writing to tell you why. But he said, I'm writing to you so that you won't be uninformed because I want you to have hope in the face of grief. And I want you to encourage others with these words. As a 20-something, I did some grief processing for my brother Jim's death 15 years before. And I thought about those adult questions that came to mind. God, why did you let Jim be born with physical limitations? Why did you let him die the night before his surgery was scheduled? Why didn't you just heal him? Why? Lingering questions that didn't get answers. That was the first time that I consciously made an imaginary mystery box. And I put those questions in the box, and then I created a mental closet And I put the box up on a high shelf, and I tucked it away, and I said, God, you take my mystery box down anytime you want to show me anything that I need to understand. Otherwise, I'm going to trust you with mysteries in my life. And I've added a lot of mysteries to that box. There's a lot that I don't know why for. 
But I'll also tell you that over time, occasionally God takes the mystery box down, blows a little bit dust off it, takes the lid off, and takes something out and gives me a little bit more insight that's always consistent with his love and his presence and with his care. Mysteries, yes, but hope, absolutely. In my experience with loss, I've learned three simple things. First, I only see and understand partially this side of heaven. I must trust Jesus with a lot. I second learned that God is present, loving, and trustworthy even when my questions aren't being answered. And third, I find encouragement in God's promise. This is what we read earlier. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. After we pray, we're going to sing again the chorus of this song. We sang it earlier. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Would you stand with me as we pray? Jesus, you came and you wept because you loved. Today, Jesus, you're weeping with some of us because we hurt. We've loved and we've lost and we grieve. Thank you for being with us and for truly being the one who can say in our suffering, I understand exactly what you're going through. Heal us today, Lord, as we come to your throne of mercy to find help in our time of need. Strengthen our grieving brothers and sisters, Lord, and whatever has caused their separation. Lord, come with comfort and with gifts of faith and with peace, Lord, in this troubled time. Help them find that anchor that is in you, Jesus. Some of us today, Lord, aren't confident that when we die or you return for us, that we will be caught up with you. We don't know if we have that relationship with you. And today, our big question is, how do I make that right? And Lord, it's by receiving you. And so this is our prayer. God, thank you for sending Jesus, your son. Jesus, thank you for living and dying and coming back to life so that we can be forgiven. I receive your forgiveness for my sin. I receive the gift and power of your spirit. Make me your child. 
forever yours. And Lord, some of us are with grieving friends and family. Lord, would you help us be a little more understanding as we're your hands around them and your voice to them and your, their touch on them. Lord, would you help us in an understanding way be your voice to them as well. As we together as a community share this common hope that you will return for us and we will forever be with you. That is our hope in Jesus' name. Would you say together with me? Amen.